You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right. Tyson, can you see my screen and hear me? All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is where we're going to, or sorry, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're in verse 19 of John chapter 20. Um, last couple of weeks, we've talked exclusively about the, the resurrection of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we talked about the uh, crucial details surrounding the burial of Jesus, right? And we said that the factual evidence supporting both the verified death and public burial of Jesus gives us the foundation needed for believing and hoping in the resurrection of Jesus. So we spent that entire week talking about how we know that Jesus died and how we know people knew where Jesus was buried, right? Because it's those two things that make the resurrection needed, that you have to have a dead Messiah to have a raised Messiah. You have to have a buried Messiah to have a confirmed resurrected Messiah. Right. And so we talked about how the people knew where he was buried. The tomb was uh, in a place where you could go and verify the resurrection. Right. And we had verification of his death. And so the reports of his resurrection are further, uh, further uh, verified because of the fact that we know he was dead and we know he was buried and we know that he was buried in a known location. Last week, we talked about the mostly empty tomb. We talked about the details surrounding the tomb of Jesus give us great reason to put our faith in his resurrection and our hope in all of his other promises to come. And so we talked about the evidence for the resurrection last week. We talked about the evidence regarding the tomb specifically, um, that the, the stone was rolled away, the guards were absent, the body was missing, the grave clothes were left undisturbed, and the resurrected Jesus was seen and touched. We specifically honed in on the idea of those those, those cloths, the, the burial clothing being undisturbed, right? We said that it gave great uh, evidence to John for him to even believe in the resurrection because he identified, this is the only thing that makes sense here. Grave robbers would have either taken the clothes or discarded the clothes in a way that would have made it very obvious that the body was stolen. And yet what we have here is undisturbed grave clothing that is absent of a body. And the only thing that can make sense is that the body is no longer there, but that it was supernaturally removed, right? And so we, we have great credence for the resurrection just in the details and the way that John writes and records what took place surrounding that first discovery of the empty tomb. And so we talked about last week determining what you believe happened to this body, um, that the disciples and, and, and others are wrestling with the idea of, did, did somebody take his body? Did somebody relocate his body? Did somebody steal his body? Or is his body back to life, right? And so we have to make a determination about what we believe. Um, and I told you that your answer to that question is your driving force for whether you believe and obey anything else that Scripture has to say. That the, the, the resurrection gives evidence and proof that Jesus is coming back one day. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. That, that he is coming back to judge. And so if we believe in a resurrected Jesus, it gives us all the motivation and reason that we need to live obediently to him. If we don't believe in a resurrected Jesus, then we can quit talking about it, right? That he's dead and he's gone and there's no, there's nothing else to, to discuss about him. Um, we talked about communicating to others the truth of the resurrection, that um, Mary Magdalene is quick to go and to tell others what she has experienced, that her sorrow has been turned to joy just as Jesus promised it would in John chapter 16, verse 20. And Jesus even talks about a new relationship that we enjoy after the resurrection. He calls the disciples his brothers, his brothers, right? So I challenged you last week to spend some time this week meditating on the resurrection, why you believe it, um, to where you could talk to somebody and share with somebody not only the truth of the resurrection, but specifically why you believe it to be true. That it's not just a story, it's not just a uh, a thing that you were told when you were younger that you have you've looked at the evidence and here's why you believe it right and so hopefully you had a chance to do that if not I would encourage you to take some time this week uh, to do that once again John chapter 20 verse 19 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Our summary sentence for today, the biblical account of the resurrection gives me all that is necessary to believe that Jesus can replace my anxious heart with a state of peace. And with the power of his spirit, I can now help others enjoy that peace too. The biblical account of the resurrection gives me all that is necessary to believe that Jesus can replace my anxious heart with a state of peace. And with the power of his spirit, I can now help others enjoy that peace too. For our kids, if we believe the Bible, we can enjoy peace with God, right? So Jesus shows up here, meets with his disciples. He had made some appearances earlier in the day. Now he's making a group collective appearance. It's not just the disciples that are in this room. We know from some of the other gospel accounts that there are others that are present here as well. Jesus shows up, makes an appearance here on Resurrection Day, and he comes preaching a message of peace, right? And and so we're going to see today that that message of peace is tied directly to the resurrection, that his resurrection enables us to enjoy peace. Remember, going back to some of the things that he was saying before the crucifixion, talking about them not having troubled hearts, right? challenging them to not let their hearts be troubled, to not let their hearts be fearful. And then he gave them assurances. He gave them promises. These are things that are going to happen. These are things that are going to be done, right? He's basically showing up now to say those things have been done, right? The things that I promised you were going to be done have been done. It's, It's now time for you to enjoy that promised peace that I was talking about, right? And we're also going to see today that he gives some instructions about our need to communicate that peace to others. How do others enjoy peace with God? How do others enjoy this this, uh, ability to see anxiousness uh, fall away, for uh, there to be an outlet to pray to a Heavenly Father who's in control of everything? How do others experience that, right? We We have a role to play. We have a task to do, and that's to communicate that process of others coming to enjoy that peace as well, right? As you continue to write, just by way of introduction, this passage is commonly remembered as the story of doubting Thomas. I titled our sermon today, Believing Thomas, because I think after closer examination of this passage, I don't think it's fair to to reference Thomas this way. Um, One, I don't think the passage necessarily presents his feelings and emotions as doubts as much as it does unbelief, right? Jesus doesn't show up necessarily and speak to his doubts. Jesus shows up and challenges him and says, don't be a, an unbeliever here, right? Um, don't, don't be one who disbelieves. Be one who believes instead, right? Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas was less of a doubter and more of an unbeliever in regards to this specific case of the resurrection, right? I'm not saying that Thomas necessarily became a Christian here and prior to this wasn't, but Thomas was making a declaration. I am not going to believe that he is back from the dead unless I see him, unless I can touch him, right? And so Jesus shows up and says, don't be a disbeliever about this. Be a believer. Here's here's the evidence that you say you needed to see in order to believe. 
Um, so I don't know that it's fair to call him Doubting Thomas. Um, but I also don't know that it's fair to single him out, right? Because the passage begins with a picture of all the disciples as a whole cowering in fear on Easter night, even after hearing the accounts of others about the resurrected Jesus, right? I think Bobby did a good job in his discussion group of pointing this out that, hey, the disciples had heard other people talking about seeing the resurrected Christ earlier in the day, and they're not believing either, right? So it's not just Thomas who says, I got to see it to believe it. Really, the disciples are functioning that way across the board. They've had people coming, Mary Magdalene, one who has come as well. They've had people coming who have said, we've seen Jesus. Jesus is back from the dead. And yet John is very clear to point out the fact that the door's locked, right? The door's closed. There's fear that's kind of set in. Uh, maybe not amongst all the disciples, because we know John has already uh, demonstrated a belief in the resurrection, but maybe he's kind of back and forth as to what did I see, what did I not see. We're not, we're not exactly sure. Um, I, I would draw your attention to the Gospel of Luke, verse 24, verse 41, as an indicator of, of how everybody's feeling in this setting, potentially. Um, says uh, Jesus shows up, presents himself. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Right? So there's still some disbelief even, even as they see the resurrected Jesus. Right? So here we are to, to, to squash Thomas so quickly and call him doubting Thomas because he didn't believe unless he saw. You even have some disciples here who are being described as people who did see and yet we're still wrestling with some belief issues, right? And then you go over to Mark uh, chapter 16, verse 14, and there's debate about whether or not this passage or this section appears in the earliest manuscripts and, and whether it should be included here, kind of similar to the passage we looked at earlier in John. While it may not have been authoritatively written at the very beginning, it's still, it's still got true accounts or it doesn't necessarily um, deter us from what Scripture says in other places, but in Mark chapter 16, verse 14, it says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So it's not just Thomas who, who is having issues with believing on the account of others and saying, I need my own account. Um, you've, you've got all the disciples that are kind of wrestling with this. Hey, other people's accounts aren't good enough for me. I'm going to need to see it. Myself, So I'm not sure that it's fair to call Thomas the Doubting Thomas. Um, really, all the disciples were kind of in this state, and it's less doubt, more unbelief uh, is kind of the approach here. What we do see that I think is different from Thomas than the other disciples is his declaration of what he now believes about Jesus after seeing the resurrected Jesus, right? We don't necessarily have that account from the other disciples. It says that they were glad when they saw the resurrected Jesus, right? So going back to John chapter 20. Um, verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands, his feet, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Thomas is more than glad, right? When he sees Jesus, he answers, verse 28, my Lord and my God. This declaration of belief is one of the strongest confessions about Jesus contained in Scripture. Let me say that again. Thomas's declaration of belief here is one of the strongest confessions about Jesus contained in Scripture because Thomas is looking at Jesus and saying, you are Yahweh. You are God, right? This, this passage gives uh, cults nightmares, right? So you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, you talk to Mormons, like this, this causes them to cringe a little bit because it, it elevates Jesus to a status that they don't want to elevate him to, Um. And I, that's why I love this passage so much, because, because Thomas leaves no doubt, right? No doubt um, as to whether or not Jesus is who he claimed to be. Thomas admits and says, you are Yahweh, right? In this passage, we see Jesus as well offering his hands and his side as proof. Um, and what it does is it proves that he's no hallucination or a ghost. He's not a hallucination or a ghost. Um, Jesus, back in Luke chapter 24, verse 39 lets them see that he is flesh and blood, right? It's a different type of flesh and blood because he's resurrected now. It's a body that, that can't, can't die. It's a body that is glorified in this new state. It's a body that we now long for and hope for. 
but it's still flesh and blood. It's not some mythical, mystical, uh, fluid, <coughs> spirit-type body, right? So a lot of people think that Jesus is passing through doors here. He may or may not be. It may just simply be that the door was locked and it miraculously opened and he walked in. Um, the Bible doesn't say that he walked through or passed through this door. Um, so we don't know exactly what, what's happening here with his body, but but he is very quick to point out that it's flesh and blood. He is very quick to point out that, hey, you got anything for me to eat, right? Because I want you to see this fish go into my body, and I want you to see it be processed by this glorified body, not just kind of fall down on the ground because I'm a ghost. So it, it helps us, again, to further verify the resurrection, what was taking place, valid, true, the accounts of the disciples is that he was bodily resurrected, and they saw it. goes back to what we see in 1 John chapter 1. John says, we touched him, right? We handled him. We can tell you and declare to you that, 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 that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, because we've been with him. We've put our hands on him, both before the crucifixion and resurrection and after the crucifixion and resurrection. All right, let's jump into our notes this morning. I got three points that I want to share with you, application points from this passage that I think really stand out to me. Uh, as a result of my studies. Number one, we need to enjoy the promised, purchased peace of the resurrected Jesus. Enjoy the promised, purchased peace of the resurrected Jesus, right? And I want, I want us to see the two aspects there, that it was promised peace and it was purchased peace, meaning Jesus promised this peace before the crucifixion. As he's having these late night discussions with the disciples, he is talking about the fact that I get that you're anxious. I get that you're troubled. I get that you're concerned and worried about how, the, how all this is going to play out. But let me tell you something. Your heart doesn't need to be troubled. You don't need to be fearful. Instead, you need to experience or feel peace. Remember, he talks about peace. I give you peace. I leave with you. Not the peace that the world offers, right? It's a different kind of peace. Um, so he's promising this peace before the crucifixion and resurrection. And now he shows up in this room and he's, he's talking about peace once again. Some commentators would try to downplay or minimize this because this was a common greeting for Jewish people to share with each other at, at any given time. So just greeting each other with that shalom, peace type greeting um, is it's, it's elevated to a different status here right? It's elevated to a different status because Jesus has the ability to make that peace possible. And I think he shows up in this room and it's hard to grasp, like, what was the setting really like, right? Because we read this and it feels very somber and very calm and very, you know, Jesus walks in. And if you just read it, like, you might picture this scene. Jesus walks in and says, peace be with you. And the disciples are like, hmm, we are so glad that you are here, right? Like there, there's almost this like lack of emotion, right? And so in my mind, I'm kind of reading this this morning, thinking through it. And, and like, I want to picture Jesus kind of walking in and being maybe a little somber at first and being like, I'm here, right? Like, check it out. Like, here are the hands. Here are the scars. Like, I talked to you about peace. Man, peace be with you right now because I'm back, right? Like, like I've, I've done it. Everything that needed to happen has been accomplished, right? And I don't picture the disciples just being like, we are very glad about this, right? Like I, I picture them like really starting to resonate with this and getting excited about the fact that, hey, this has gone a completely different direction than we thought it was going to go, right? Like we weren't expecting this. And all of a sudden, like our minds are being transformed by the fact that what, what does this mean now? What are the implications of this? Right, and and I believe that they're starting to to get empowerment about what this now means for them too. That they are going to escape death just like he promised. I picture some of the 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 promises that he's made previously now flooding into their mind, and we know from some of the other gospel accounts that Jesus actually starts to teach them in this setting as well, and reminds them of some of the things that he's already preached to them. But basically, Jesus is showing up to say the grounds for peace have been delivered. I can truly offer peace to you. I've won the peace for you. Now, here's what I want you to kind of get from this. His work, and I think he's tying the peace to his work, right? Because he says, peace with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, right? So he shows up, peace be with you. And here's why I can say that, right? Like, here's why I can say that because I died and I'm, and I'm back from the dead. So his work 
allows us to know where we stand with the infinite creator of the universe, right? Jesus's work allows us to know where we stand with the infinite creator of the universe. You've probably experienced like pockets or glimpses of this in earthly relationships. For those of you that have had earthly bosses and, and, and currently have earthly bosses, you know what it feels like to sometimes not know where you stand with your boss, right? Like, is he pleased with my performance? Is he not pleased with my performance? Do I have a job moving forward? Do I not have a job moving forward? Is he, is he happy with me or displeased with me? All of us have probably existed in a state where we had a boss and we weren't really sure where we stood with. But we've hopefully all of us have had times and pockets where we've worked for somebody and we've had this, this meeting where great affirmation was given to you about your job performance. Um, appreciation was shown, right? And you left that meeting and you're like, I'm in really good standing with my boss right now. Like I know exactly where I stand with him. He is pleased with me. He is pleased with my work, right? This is even true like with your spouse, right? Like uh, maybe you're maybe you're laying on the couch together or maybe you're sitting out by the fire and like you know that there's nothing at odds with you right now, right? Like there's no disagreement. There's no hurt feelings. Like you're at perfect peace with each other. And just being able to enjoy that understanding that I know where I stand with my boss or I know where I stand with my spouse. What Jesus is offering to us with the work on the cross is that we can all the time know where we stand with the infinite creator of the universe. The one who has the ability to, uh, to destine us to eternity with him or judge us for eternity with his wrath. We can know where we stand with him. But I think too oftentimes we operate and live as though we're not really sure where we stand with God. Is he pleased with our performance? Is he not pleased with our performance? Is he happy with us or displeased with us, right? What Jesus is saying here is he says, I'm offering peace to you, a peace that can exist between someone who was previously your enemy. You were at odds with God. And now I'm offering this, this peace, this restoration, like going back to what it was in the Garden of Eden where you are now okay with the creator of the universe, be able to walk with him and talk with him and experience him and know that you're not under his wrath. That's the type of peace that Jesus is offering here. His work allows us to know where we stand with the infinite creator of the universe. So that peace is available. So number one, the peace available to us is tied directly to what Jesus accomplished. We have that peace, not because of our performance, right? So with the boss, I have peace with him because I'm doing a good job. With my spouse, even in some respects, I'm, I'm at peace with, with her or him because of how I'm <clears throat> treating her or him or living with him or her. But with God, it's based on the work of Jesus, right? My peace with him comes from the performance of another, which is hard for us to understand sometimes because all these other relationships are tied to our performance. Peace with my boss, peace with my spouse, peace with my kids, kids peace with their parents. Like all that's kind of tied to our performance. Whereas with God, it's tied to Jesus's performance, right? His work lets us know where we stand with the infinite creator. Number two, the peace available to us is meant to inform our human emotions. The peace available to us is meant to inform our human emotions. Back in John chapter 14, I've alluded to this already, but I want to read it to you now. John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right? Jesus is saying, I offer you something that this world cannot offer. I'm offering you something that, that a bank account can't offer you. I'm offering you a something that a job can't offer you or a house or a spouse or any other relationship. I'm offering you a type of peace that doesn't go away. And it's a type of peace that can keep your heart from being troubled or ever being afraid. I wrote in my notes, we can let our troubled hearts drown in the blood of Christ. We can let our troubled hearts drown in the blood of Christ. Cause that's what Jesus is saying here. 
He's showing up and he's saying, peace be with you. Why? Because I shed the blood for you, right? I've satisfied the wrath of God. I have created an outlet now for you to have this this relationship with him that's based on my performance and and not yours, right? Peace be with you because you, you can enjoy this. You actually can enjoy this because I've done everything necessary for you to enjoy it. We can drown our troubled hearts in the blood of Christ. We can escape anxiousness. We can escape fear by looking to Jesus. And we should regularly be moving from anxiousness to peace. We need to close the gap of time that it takes for us to believe these truths. And here's what I would want you to understand. Anxiousness undermines the work of Christ. Anxiousness undermines the work of Christ. Because when we're anxious, we are anxious and fearful because we're not sure which direction our circumstances are going. Right? We get anxious and fearful because we're not sure how our needs are going to be met. We're not sure what the end result is going to be of this situation. We're we're anxious or fearful about what could happen, which may never happen, right? Many of us live in a state of anxiousness about what could happen, and yet those things never happen, right? We undermine the work of Christ. And I I need you to see this this morning if if you battle anxiousness in your life, because one of the ways to attack it is to attack it by reflecting on the work of Christ. Because when we allow ourselves to to be anxious or to be fearful, what we're saying is, is, I don't believe you, Jesus. I don't believe your work is sufficient. I don't believe your work has put me into relationship with the Heavenly Father, the creator of this universe, who has promised to direct my circumstances for good at all times. When we get anxious and fearful about the future, we are saying, you know what? I don't, I don't know where I stand with the creator. He may or may not move this in the right direction for me. We need to attack our anxiousness by realizing when, when I get anxious and troubled and fearful, I am undermining the work of Christ because Jesus shows up and says, here's my work. Put your hands here if you need to. Here's my work. Peace be with you. All right. Enjoy the promised purchased peace of the resurrected Jesus. Number two, Embrace the responsibilities of serving the resurrected Jesus. Embrace the responsibilities of serving the resurrected Jesus. He goes on to say, after telling them this, let me get back to John chapter 20, verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. For our kids, we need to tell others about the peace Jesus offers. That's what we're tasked to do here. Jesus says, as my Father sent me, I'm sending you. So number one here, we have been given supernatural power to serve. We've been given supernatural power to serve. What Jesus is saying here is that we are now to be the present earthly extension of him to those around us. So Jesus is about to leave. He's saying, look, I'm sending you now. You're the extension of me. You're to to serve others around you and to ultimately be one who who takes the peace that he's just communicated, the peace that he has earned through his work. We're to communicate that to other people. So let me me just kind of add this in here. We should be pillars of peace right now to those looking at our life. In the midst of all the uncertainty that we're dealing with, with the coronavirus and and, and where this is all headed and what's life going to be like down the road, we have to be pillars of peace to a world that's looking for hope, right? We can't afford, we can't afford to be individuals who are troubled and fearful and anxious. And I get that all of us are going to wrestle with those feelings at some point during during these weeks. And if these weeks continue and you haven't felt it, you probably will feel it in the next several weeks. There's going to be times where our heart is tempted to be troubled. It's tempted to be fearful. It's tempted to be anxious. And I challenged you at the very beginning of this year, resolve to not be troubled and anxious this year. And now God's given us an opportunity to test that. Are we going to be troubled and fearful and anxious? Or are we going to believe in his work that he has attained peace for us and that we are in relationship with a creator who is sovereign over every piece of this creation and is moving it in a direction, right? Moving it in a direction of good for his children. We have to be pillars of peace right now. Jesus says, I'm sending you to be an extension of me to those around you. 
and he's empowering us by the Holy Spirit to carry out this function, right? Jesus does something really weird here, and I, I couldn't really tell you exactly what's happening here. In verse 22, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, I know this isn't in place of Pentecost because in John chapter 16, verse 17, he's already said the Holy Spirit's not really coming in his full presence until I'm gone. Jesus isn't gone yet, right? And then in Luke 24, 49, Jesus even tells them after doing this, you got to stick around for the full dose of the Holy Spirit that's going to come in a few days when I'm gone, right? So it's not in place of Pentecost. Pentecost is still coming. There, there's a lot of things that happen in this weird transitional period of uh, new covenant or old covenant moving to new covenant, right? You got some people that are followers of Old Testament Yahweh and Acts, and, and they have to be told about Jesus so they can actually receive Jesus and really be saved. And so transitional period is weird, right? So don't, don't be frustrated or confused or discontent with not having great answers about this, right? This is certainly a foretaste or a precursor of what we experience today to the fullest, right? Whatever's happening here, not fully sure, right? What I do know is that we have the Holy Spirit to the fullest right now as believers. And I think this passage is, is just simply moving us in that direction of understanding that when he commissions us to be a representative of him, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that, right? So we have this Holy Spirit power to be a representative of him, to be a pillar of peace. Number two, we have been given gospel authority to communicate, right? He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, let me be clear. Again, this is being spoken to more than just the disciples. There are other Christians in this setting besides the, 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 those who walk closely with Jesus in this group or this band that we know as the disciples, right? There's other people in this room, and I believe he's speaking to every single one of them. So what's he saying? Is God or is Jesus giving us the authority to tell somebody if their sins are forgiven or not or to have the power to forgive sins or to not forgive sins? I don't, I don't believe that's the case at all. I believe this passage is real similar to what he says in Matthew 16, 19, and then also in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. In those passages, Jesus talks about the kingdom being given to Christians, being given to the church, and that whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. So what are these passages collectively saying? I think what's being said here is that we, as Christians, but even more so as the church, we have the right and responsibility to declare to those that believe that their sins can be forgiven and are, and to warn those who reject that they will die in their sins. So what's being tasked here is that Jesus is saying, I want you to become the instruments of clarity about eternal matters, right? Up to this point, Jesus has been the one forgiving sins and telling people if they're okay and, and telling people to, to, that they've been forgiven, right? What Jesus is saying now is that I am giving you the gospel message, Christians. I am giving you the gospel message, church, and you have the right. You have the right to say to an individual, if you believe, as John is about to say here at the end of this chapter, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that God raised him from the dead, then your sins are forgiven, right? You're saved. You're going to heaven. If you believe that, right? And if you don't believe that, I can tell you where you're going, right? We don't have to cower in, in fear and try to be politically correct. Jesus doesn't want us to be politically correct here. He doesn't want to say, yeah, we're going to leave that up to God. Like, I don't know where you're going. He's saying, you know, you do know where people are going. If they believe this, they're Christians, and they're saved, and their sins have been forgiven. And if they don't, they're going to die in their sins. They're going to spend eternity in hell. He's simply telling the Christian, telling the church, you have the message to communicate. And part of your responsibility in communicating that message is the end part, to be able to tell somebody after presenting the gospel, hey, if you believe this, your sins are forgiven, right? Jesus did all the work necessary. Your sins are forgiven if you believe this. And if you don't, then you're going to die and go to hell. I believe that's exactly what Jesus means here. I believe it's what he means in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, because in Matthew chapter 18, it's that church discipline, go to each other and, and try to get somebody to confess and repent of their sins. And what does it say the culmination part is? If this person refuses to repent, what are we supposed to do? We treat them like an unbeliever. And that's when he says, look, 
You are the, the instruments of clarity to people. You're helping people see if their sins are forgiven or not. Not because we have some type of special power. We don't have some type of special power, nor do we have some type of special authority. We have a special message. We've been given the truth, right? And when somebody becomes a Christian, they have that truth just like we do, right? So, so the disciples had it. The other people in the room had it. We now have it as believers too. We have the gospel. And what Jesus has told us to do with it is you go tell people how to be, how to be forgiven. And you go warn people that if they don't believe, that they'll never be forgiven, right? That's, that's the task here. Not to, to exercise some type of special power or authority, but to take a message that you comprehend and share it with others and be an extension of Christ and, and help them know what it means to come and enjoy this peace, this peace that Jesus shows up and says, you can have peace because I died and rose again, right? So embrace that responsibility. You have supernatural power to help you, Holy Spirit, and you have a gospel message, right, to communicate. Not special authority or power to forgive or not forgive. You have special power and authority to communicate the message of how to be forgiven or how to be or, or what the consequences will be for not believing, right? Number three. So we've had enjoy the promise, purchase, peace of the resurrected Jesus. Embrace the responsibilities of serving the resurrected Jesus. Number three, educate your current experiences with faithful accounts of the resurrected Jesus. Now, let me explain this, what I mean by this. Educate your current experiences with the faithful accounts of the resurrected Jesus. And here's how I'm understanding experiences and accounts, what I mean by that. I'm viewing experiences as your current state of existence and circumstances that you're in and those circumstances not being done, that, that the story is still being written there. Whereas accounts would be things that, that God has done in the past and we can kind of look to it and see God's faithfulness there. So what I'm, what I'm, what I'm challenging you with here is let faithful accounts about the resurrected Jesus speak to and educate your personal experiences that you're going through right now. Because here's what Thomas says. Thomas says, I don't care if you saw the resurrected Jesus unless he shows up right here, right now and shows me those scars, I'm not believing, right? What we can't be are believers who say, I don't care if God was faithful in the past. I don't care if God did this for Joshua and Jacob and, and Joseph and David and Moses and Abraham and, and whoever, unless he shows up right now and does it for me, I don't believe it, right? For our kids, sometimes we have to believe what we've heard about Jesus when we can't see Jesus, right? When we can't actively see Jesus in our circumstance, that's when we have to leave our experience and say, you know what? The faithful accounts of the resurrected Jesus are going to hold me tight right now when I can't see Jesus. We have to let our current experience be educated by the faithful accounts of the resurrected Jesus in the past, right? Thomas struggled with this, but all the disciples struggled with this as we saw, right? They heard accounts, but they said, you know what? I don't believe that. Unless he does it for me, I don't believe it. And the truth of the matter is, and what Jesus is trying to get Thomas to see is, blessed are those who believe it before they can see it, right? Blessed are those who believe it without having to see it, right? Blessed is the Christian who can go through a hard, trying time and can believe that good is being worked even if they can't see it, right? My own personal experience, I mean, it was a dark time for Lauren and I when we were going through our miscarriages. But during this, this time of, of closure and coronavirus and stay at home, shelter at home. There's been multiple times where I've, I've held Apollos, right? And, and thought about the fact that he wouldn't be here right now without the, the things that we had to go through, right? He wouldn't be here right now. Um, he, he's a unique image bearer of God that would not be in existence today without the, the messy stuff that we had to go through. Now, not everybody gets to see that right now right? There's, there's others in our church who have battled for years trying to have kids. We, we've had multiple cases of people in our church who have gone through miscarriages. Not everybody has been able to see 
the good on the other side. So mine would be an account. I'd be sharing an account for somebody this morning saying, hey, I've gone through some bad stuff and I've seen God work good in it, right? I would want that account to speak to somebody's current experience, right? And for them to say, you know what? I believe that God is present here. I believe that God is working here because I know that he has been faithful to others. I'm believing on account of others and what they've experienced with the resurrected Jesus. And I'm believing it for myself right now. I'm not going to tell Jesus, you have to show up right now and do it for me, just like you did it for Adam. Right? You're going to stand there and say, I'm going to believe you, Jesus, right now, because I know you've done it for others. And I'm not seeing it right now. I'm not experiencing it right now. But on the account of others, I believe. I believe in the resurrected Jesus. Right? Number one, be willing to personalize your faith in Jesus. Be willing to personalize it. John or Thomas has Jesus show up, right? And he confesses not just that he believes in the resurrected Jesus, but he personalizes it and says, my Lord and my God, right? We have a responsibility to evaluate the evidence of the resurrection, to confess it to be true, and then embrace the implications it has for our life moving forward, right? So, It's the person right now who's in the midst of an experience right now where you're not seeing Jesus potentially working. And you say, you know what? My Lord and my God is right here, whether he shows up visibly for me to see him or not. Right? My Lord and my God based on the accounts of others. That's what Jesus says. He says, Thomas, I want you. I want the disciples. I want others down the road who aren't going to have the privilege of seeing me to believe based on the accounts of others. My Lord and my God, my master. What's great here is that Jesus accepts this recognition, which shows his deity here, right? Paul, later in Acts chapter 14, he gets called a God by the Greeks, and he defers that. He deflects that. He says, whoa, 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 I'm just a creature like you, right? Jesus readily accepts it and says, you know what, Thomas, this is great. I need other people to do this, right? I need other people to recognize me as their Lord and their God. Right? We need to be willing to personalize our faith in Jesus. It's not enough to admit that Jesus is the great treasure buried in the field. We have to sell everything and go purchase that field to really put our faith and trust in him. Number two, be willing to believe when you can't always see. Be willing to believe when you can't always see. Because here's what, here's what Scripture says, Romans 10, 17. Belief's really about hearing, not seeing, Right? We hear these accounts. We hear the word of God. We hear what he's done in the lives of others. And we may not see it in our life personally. We may may not always be able to see his active presence. It's there though. It's 100% there. 100% there. It was there when Job couldn't see it, right? We look back and we say, oh yeah, Job, I see where that was. It was there for Joseph when he couldn't see it. Now we can look back and see, oh yeah, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But at the time, Joseph couldn't see it necessarily. And he had to believe on the account of what God had done for his father. That God was doing it right there for them, even though he couldn't see it, even though he was in jail and couldn't see it, even though he was being falsely accused and couldn't see it, right? Be willing to believe when you, what you can't always see. We have been given more than sufficient eyewitness accounts that Jesus was raised from the dead, right? We have these divinely inspired recollections in the Gospels. We have all these details. We can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not just a story. It's not just a fairy tale. We can believe it's historical, right? We believe that, that George Washington was the first president of the United States, right? We, 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 we've never seen George Washington. We weren't there, but other people told us about it. We believe it, right? How far much more do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, not because of a history book, but because of the divinely inspired word of God? We have been given more than sufficient evidence of God's faithfulness to his people, right? So not just that Jesus is back from the dead, but that he does offer peace, right? We have all kinds of evidence in scripture, all kinds of stories that we can go to to see God's faithfulness. And then we have extra biblical accounts, right? Like I shared one this morning. We all have accounts of how God has shown faithfulness to us. We have more than enough evidence for us to trust in his faithfulness now. We'll close with this. What am I being tasked to believe without seeing? What am I supposed to believe even when I can't see it? Right? I want to kind of summarize what it is I want you to leave with this morning. I want you believing this even if Jesus doesn't show up 
and, and work and move in a visible way for you to see it, that you believe this is happening, right? Let me give this to you. And in here where this would have been really small on your screen over here, right? You get to see this right in front of you on your computer screen, right? I wrote this this morning. Based on what scripture teaches as recorded by eyewitnesses, I am called to believe that Jesus is alive in fulfillment of scripture after satisfying the eternal wrath of God that was previously directed towards me. And now, by choosing to submit to the lordship of Jesus by following him, I am the recipient of God's permanent favor. Right? I know where I stand with him, which guarantees that my circumstances will always be used as a means of drawing me closer to him, both in times of plenty as a way for me to rejoice in his goodness and in times of need as a way for me to cling to his greatness. Remembering that when he chooses to provide me with earthly means and when he chooses to withhold, both actions are meant to provide a glimpse of what he is capable of while creating a longing in me for the world to come, right? I'm supposed to believe that Jesus is back from the dead and that it means something, that it means that I can be, I can be at peace with God, that his wrath has been dealt with. And by choosing to follow him, I am also believing that his permanent favor is on me at all times. And it guarantees that my circumstances are always a tool for me to draw closer to him. And sometimes I draw closer to him because he's, he's blessing me with, with earthly means, plenty of earthly means. And I simply respond by rejoicing in his goodness, how, how good God is to give me and bless me in such ways. But he also uses circumstances where I'm in need and he's not providing the earthly means for me as a, as a reminder for me to cling to his greatness, right? That he is better than whatever it is I'm not having right now. Whether that's the job that I want, the kid that I want, the spouse that I want, whatever it is. When he's not providing those things for me, it's a time for me to cling to his greatness, right? He gives me these things. Man, I cling to, I cling to his goodness and his provision. And I'm so thankful. When he's not, when he's not giving me those things, man, I'm clinging to his greatness. You know what? I, I don't have to have those things because he's greater than those things, right? And, and, and when he's giving and when he's not giving, what he's doing there is he's showing me what he's capable of, right? He, he is capable of, of, of giving me good things and great things. And when he doesn't, it keeps this healthy longing in me to not be satisfied with earthly things, right? When he withholds things from me, it keeps this longing in me that says, man, I can't wait for the world to come. I can't wait for that world to come where, where I don't have to deal with sickness and I don't have to deal with death and I don't have to deal with loneliness. So let me encourage you this morning. Believe that Jesus is back from the dead and believe that means something for you, that you can have peace with God and believe that by following him, he's always working good in your circumstances. He's teaching you to draw closer to him. Sometimes he's going to give you things that are going to cause you to rejoice in him. Other times he's going to not give you things that it's going to cause you to cling to him. And I would challenge you, don't run from him, right? Don't grumble and complain at him. Run to him and cling to him because he's greater than whatever it is he's withholding from you. And let those times where he gives you things to, to be a time where you see what he's capable of doing. And let the times when he doesn't give you things be a time that, that causes you to long for the day when all those, those wants and desires and whatnot are satisfied completely in him for all eternity. Our application for today, two points. Let the Bible speak to your anxious heart this week. All right, I challenge you. We're supposed to be pillars of peace. People who aren't troubled, aren't anxious, aren't fearful. What are you going to read in God's word this week to help your belief if you've been struggling with anxiousness? Let the Bible speak to your anxious heart this week. Go to previous accounts and let those accounts speak to your current experience and let it pull you out of this anxious, fearful, troubled heart that you may have right now. Resolve to not let your heart be troubled this year. Secondly, let your peace impact those around you. Once you've kind of done some self-surgery and fixed your own heart and let the word speak to your heart to where you're enjoying peace rather than anxiousness, let your peace impact those around you. Don't hold it to yourself, right? Communicate peace to others, how they can enjoy peace, both <clears throat> helping current Christians see how the, their, their anxiousness needs to be spoken to by God's word. Help them see peace 
in ways that maybe they're not. But then for those that aren't Christians, this is a great opportunity for you now to, to speak opportunities for peace for them too. Help them see what it looks like to follow after a God who gives you great peace when everything in this world would tell you right now you should be anxious and fearful and troubled. Who can you share the hope of peace with this week? Our family worship questions for this week. What are some of our favorite Bible stories as a family that reflects God's faithfulness to us? And how can those stories encourage us during this time with the coronavirus? I encourage you to reflect on some of that this week. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness and your greatness. We thank you so much for the resurrected Jesus. We thank you that he made appearances after his resurrection to, to fearful and cowering disciples, to an unbelieving Thomas. God, we're thankful that, that in the midst of those appearances, Jesus communicated peace, and not just an empty peace, but peace with some teeth to it because he had the, the nail-scarred hands and the pierced side to back up why he could offer peace, because he has purchased it on our behalf. And we can now join, enjoy peace with you. And God, I'm thankful that I can sit here today and I can know where I stand with you, not because I've been a, a good boy this week, but because Jesus was a perfect man for me. God, I'm thankful that, my, that the, the wrath that I deserved has been poured out on your son. And I'm thankful that, that by following the great shepherd, in the midst of the most uncertain times of my life, I don't have to be fearful. I don't have to be troubled or anxious. While I don't know where we're going, I know on the other side of the valley of shadow of death, there are, there are calm streams and green pastures for me to lay down in. So God, I pray that you would help all of us to battle anxiousness and troubled hearts and fearful mindsets. Help us to enjoy peace with you today and help us to rely upon the accounts that we know from others if we don't feel like we're experiencing it right now ourselves. God, protect us from being a Thomas who says, unless you show up right now, I'm not going to believe in you. God, help us to be the type of people who say, you know what? I believe. I believe because you've done it for others. You've shown yourself to others. And even though I don't see you right now, I believe that you are here and you are working. God, help that to encourage us to, today and this week. God, help us to be people who are willing to believe without seeing. We thank you for the accounts countless accounts that we have of your faithfulness and your goodness and your greatness. Help us to, to keep clinging to that in the midst of uncertain times. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.